Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5, streaming online or on the podcast. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their record collection and look through the stories and songs that have shaped them. I'm coming to you from the FBI Radio studio in Eora, Sydney, and my guest is joining me from Nam or so-called Melbourne, today. So before we go any further, I want to pay my respects to Gadigal and Wurundjeri elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with writer and illustrator Celeste Mountjoy. Celeste is the creator of Filthy Rat Bag, an online alter ego known for colourful, grungy art that's got this rotating cast of characters including rat-human babes in bikinis and shit-talking, cigarette-smoking cats and sarcastic seagulls. They hold a distorted mirror to us that feels like a hilarious punch in the guts. It's profoundly honest and dark and humble. And last week, Celeste teased all of that out into a book, What the F is this is a personal narrative that follows her life and her love and her losses and her fears, including rejection, addiction and death. Today we're going to pour over the book and the stories behind it and of course listen to the songs that have defined Celeste's life. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi Mia, it's great to be here. You've been sharing your life through your art since you were a teenager, Celeste. What made you want to extend that practice into a book? Um, I think that there is kind of a really interesting uh, crossover that I found when changing it into a book form because the story becomes a lot more sort of literal that I'm telling. I mean, when I was just sharing my art online in sort of small snippets, it was a lot more up to people's sort of own interpretations of what they kind of felt that it was about. And I still definitely want my work to come across that way for people and I want people to be able to have their own take on it. But I guess now with my book, it's sort of got quite a cohesive narrative and it tells more of a story about my life rather than just uh, small vignettes that you can kind of take how you like. Is is that why even though it does kind of walk through your life, I wouldn't call it a biography, it looks like you've left out some specifics. Is the reason for that so people can impart their own story in it? I think um, it was a pretty, like, conscious decision that I made in the early stages of making the book um, because there was sort of a bit of a... I was thinking a lot about, God, like, it's, it's a pretty sort of vulnerable thing to be, like, sharing this much of yourself to the world and especially, you know, you've read the book, like, a lot of the themes are extremely personal Um So I guess I did want to have like a small amount of preservation, which frankly, I feel by the end of the making the book sort of (laughs) didn't really exist. Um, But I also do think that a big part of my art is that I want to be able to sort of offer this like solidarity and sort of um, a, a chance for the reader to relate. And so if I went into the nitty gritty tiny details of the things that happened to me and that have happened to me in my life I feel like that kind of takes away from the reader being able to insert themselves into the storyline. Yeah and I mean that's something that you say at the start about how it doesn't offer solutions to your problems but it 
does offer that solidarity. And yeah. Yeah, even though I think that the problems you and I have faced in our lives are different, I felt like I could definitely relate to some of the things you talked about. So with that in mind, who did you write the book for? I think I was worried about who would like the book as well when I started writing it and if people would enjoy it or if they would um, identify with it. And I think what I came to the conclusion of is that even though the stuff that I talk about in my book is a little bit taboo or a little bit, you know, full on at times, I mean, like there's a lot of talk about grieving and loss and heartache and mental illness and addiction. I think that like, although they're pretty heavy topics, I don't think that they're um, unique at all or uncommon. I feel like they're just things that maybe sometimes we try not to talk about because they're quite scary to talk about um, mm. because it leaves us feeling quite sort of vulnerable and um, and vulnerability can be like a really scary thing. Um, but there is kind of empowerment to be found in it as well. And I guess that's maybe what I'm trying to encourage a little bit with the book is that it's kind of okay to talk about the messed up stuff that happens to us and there is kind of a lot of freedom in doing that. I'm just thinking about what you said before about pivoting from the art making to the book making and how self-preservation changes in that way and how making the book is you kind of revealing a little bit more of who you are because I think when I first encountered you as an artist it was in like 2015 and there was this media obsession about this edgy 16 year old pseudo adult who was super self-aware and self-deprecating and made art that looked at society in this honest way and all of these interviews were really about your age and how aware you were despite being so young. So when I read the book and you did reveal those extra things about yourself, I was kind of shocked to find out what your life looked like behind those interviews and that you were actually dealing with some pretty big and really adult problems. Would you say that you were originally withholding that information at the time? Yeah, I I think that that whole sort of media um, thing that you're talking about is really interesting to reflect on because a lot of my work these days sort of talks about the fetishization of youth and how obsessed people are with it, yet it's sort of what gave me um, a platform as an artist initially because there were all of these people who were so interested in that fact. Um, so it's it's really, really interesting for me to look at now um, with a bit of time and age. I think that this book for me... It, like there was a lot of reflection going on because um, I'm 22 now so I guess it's kind of a normal age to start looking back at what my teenage years were like and you know I had I guess a pretty um, like a lot of teenagers do I had some pretty intense experiences and I sort of was pretty out there and did a lot of um, things that were maybe not <laughs> age appropriate so I guess at the time when I was first um, being recognised for my art, you know, at that age, at 15 and 16 and stuff, I wasn't quite ready to put myself out there as much and to talk about the things that were going on. I guess that's because I didn't completely understand them at that age. And it's only with a little bit of sort of adult hindsight that I can make sense of a lot of it. You know, it's it's like when you're 15 and a guy's telling you how mature you are for your age and he's 25 and you're sleeping with him and you think that's totally normal because you must be so mature for your age. But then you think back to it as a grown-up and you like realise that you're actually just 
a kid and that the guy was a total creep and not the hunk that you thought he was. I mean, I also, in my head at the time, did truly believe that I was as um, fully formed as like a 30 year old woman. Like I thought that everything that was going on in my life was very normal. Um, And looking back, I now realize it certainly wasn't. Um, So I guess that gives me a reason to kind of create art about it and shine a bit of a light on it and be like, hang on, what was actually going on there? And how many other young girls are these kind of awful things happening to? Because I think it's a lot more common than we think. Totally. And when we were getting this interview ready, we talked about this and I thought about something you said about how a lot of us spend our early 20s kind of reflecting on how bad our teenage years were because when you're a teenager, you feel so invincible, right? So Mm. when you get to this age and you look back on that, you're like, oh my God, I wasn't invincible. And those things were really quite bad. It's a shock, isn't it? Like it's, it's really terrifying and it makes you kind of start perceiving the world as like pretty dark and awful. And I mean, I think there was definitely a point in time where I was filled with a lot of anger because of it. And I think I definitely still harness a lot of that anger, but I'm just learning to sort of um, channel it in different ways now, Uh, which, you know, it's not like I've uh, figured out fully how to do that, but I think that doing things like making the book and stuff are a healthier way of me exploring those things than just uh, clenching my fists and getting drunk and crying and screaming (laughs) at the world, you know? (laughs) This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 and all the way up until 1pm today, we'll tease out some of those moments that you've written about in the book, Celeste, and also soundtrack them and soundtrack the love and the loss that you've felt in your life. But first, we'll jump into a song. What's the first one you've picked? So the first song that I have picked today is Total Control by The Motels. Um which is a great song. Um, I still absolutely love it, but it takes me way, way back to when I was about um, maybe 16 and someone that I was seeing made me a playlist with all of these uh, romantic songs on it and I remember loving this one and I think it's funny. At the time I thought it was so um, (laughs) romantic and kind of cute and these days I listen to the lyrics and talks about having total control over someone and how you'd sell your soul to have total control over someone and I think it's got this kind of uh dirty foreshadowing (laughs) to what the next few years are going to be like for me (laughs) yeah the motels the song was called total control and you heard it right here on out of the box on fbi radio 94.5 i'm mia hull i'm sitting down with artist and now author celeste mountjoy to roll through the records and stories that have shaped her life and just before we were talking about when you were a teenager celeste and i want to wind the clock all the way back to the very beginning where did your life start 
Yeah, I was born in Wagga Wagga to my mum and dad, and I was only there for a few years um, before we moved to Melbourne. So Melbourne's mostly what I sort of know. Um, and growing up uh, in, you know, a split up household, um, we did a lot of moving around. So, so your parents split up when you were young. Yeah, when I was little, um, very young. Like I hardly remember it. So. Um, not too much trauma there. <laughs> um, and yeah, my dad moved houses a lot. So, you know, we were in Oakley and Blackburn and Camberwell and all these different places, which was kind of fun living in all these different rentals. And there was a period of time where he didn't have a place at all. And we were just living out of all these different motels, um, which was seedy and fun <laughs> and meant that, you know, I'd be like living off KFC and Maccas whenever I saw him, which is like a kid's dream. Plus there <laughs> were pools at the city motels, which was pretty dreamy. Um, yeah, so I kind of, Melbourne is what I know best, yeah. But your dad worked at a university, didn't he? Yeah, so he was a film lecturer in Queensland when he met my mum, who was his student. <laughs> Oh, he, he didn't work as a lecturer anymore um, by the time I was growing up. He um, he was kind of just doing his own thing, making music and being a bit of a rock star. Um, so, you know, he, he was just, I'd say, probably a pretty bohemian kind of guy. Um, like, I didn't have a dysfunctional upbringing, but I think I had a, you know, colourful upbringing, I would say. <laughs> Well, part, part of that colour came from the drawings that your dad did when you were little, Celeste. Tell me about those. Yeah, so my dad has always been, like, quite creative and so is mum. But I just remember, like, it was never really a full-time kind of hobby for dad. But I remember, you know, I'd wake up in the mornings and on the coffee table he'd have all these newspapers spread out and he'd have drawn all these, like, little black teeth onto the photos of people and, like, <laughs> made their eyes all cooked-looking and, like... I think it's just stoner art, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I used to think that that was really funny and he'd kind of have little speech bubbles coming out of them and I always thought, you know, it was pretty cool and funny and it mixed into what I already enjoyed at that point, which was like storytelling and manipulating things to kind of make something brand new. It was an exciting concept to me. So you were always going to be a filthy rat bag? Yeah, I think I was definitely always very drawn to storytelling because, you know, it was a great idea. It was like if you wanted to make a story or read a story, then you can just kind of make your own. It's like magic. And you said your mum was creative as well. What did that look like for her? She was just really encouraging um, and you know, she was always the first person I'd go to if I'd done a drawing and I'd say, what do you think of this? And I remember going to her when I was like four or five and I had these sketchbooks that I'd fill out and she'd sit with me and write down all of the speech bubbles that I wanted the characters to be saying because I couldn't <laughs> write at that point. Um, so she'd kind of help me make all these stories. Um, so I got into it when I was really little and then eventually when I learned how to write myself, I kind of kept doing that same thing I'd just um, make stories about the stuff that I kind of wanted to read about which was sometimes very strange but sometimes you know more just normal fairy stories and stuff that young girls kind of like to make. And then if we kind of fast track to the birth of Filthy Rat Bag I guess it was a 
really interesting time to be coming up as an artist because it was almost the first time that artists were posting their work online. I feel like I'm telling your story for you, but you know, no, but you, you're completely you- <laughs> right. Um, Instagram was like, it was kind of, uh, its birth was like 2013, I think. Um, and I was 14, 13 at that time. And so it just kind of aligned perfectly that I'd started making these comics. I guess I'll call them comics. Um, and it was a great way to sort of put them out there. You know, it wasn't Facebook. You didn't have to make statuses anymore. You could sort of express yourself in these new ways and meet people from all over the world. And (laughs) it was really exciting. And having that sort of sense of anonymity that even comes with just like an Instagram username, like being able to use filthy rap bag rather than Celeste Mountjoy at the time as a teenager, that felt sort of liberating to me. And to come up as an artist on Instagram in this way, how, how do you think that positioned you as, you know, a professional art maker who doesn't necessarily exhibit in galleries or didn't come up that way? I mean, I think I was doing a bit of both. It all happened pretty organically. I think I just went with it, you know, like I would send out emails to different news publications and say, I'm Celeste Manchoy and I make art and here's my art and I'm 14. And, of course, as we know now, the age thing was a huge selling point. Mm. Um, So, you know, that was something that worked for me at the time. And then because I was kind of getting recognised by these online publications and stuff, galleries would be more inclined to take on my work because they'd seen me posted somewhere, so I was taken slightly more seriously. So they were kind of feeding into each other, you know? Mm. You you talk about your age as the big selling point, but I also think the big selling point was that for your age you were talking about such adult things and Mm. in the next part of the show I... I kind of want to cover off on some of those stories that you were telling, even in that really early art and the way that you talked about love as well. But first, I want to play a song about love or <laughs> maybe loosely about love. It's called The Kiss. Can you tell me about it? The Kiss. It's by Judy Sill, who I think is a very underrated musician. Um she has a really interesting backstory as well. I want them to make a biopic about her. Um But I remember listening to this song um, when I would have been a little bit older, like around 19, I think, and I was sitting in a restaurant drawing and I was listening to it. And I just remember kind of realising that I'd like fallen in love again and it wasn't even a really um, nice or tender moment. It was sort of this moment of realising like, oh my God, I don't want this to even be happening. It's, you know, it's... I'm in love with someone I shouldn't be in love with um and it was kind of just like me having this realization of how like codependent I was and how toxic my relationship with love was at that time I'd become sort of like a love junkie by that age because I was so transfixed on being with someone and being loved by someone because I thought that that was the only thing that kind of gave me value at that point um However, it's a really beautiful song (laughs) and I still listen to it even though it's tainted by that kind of interesting time in my life. (laughs) It's Judy Sill on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called The Kiss and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Celeste Mountjoy. Lately sparkling holes come fill my dreams descending on fire 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was called The Kiss. It was by Judy Sill and it was chosen by Celeste Mountjoy, my guest on the show and the creator of Filthy Rat Bag and now the author of What the F Is This, which was loosely a, a biography. It's more of a personal narrative that looks at Celeste's life and one of the things that it looks at Celeste is love and The chapter about love in the book is called Please Don't Say You Don't Love Me and I want to get into it for a little while. Can you first tell me what ideas that chapter covers? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I have always had a very interesting relationship with love and relationships and that kind of thing. I, I mean, I talk about it fully in depth in my book, of course, but I kind of really did think it was what I was meant to be in this world is in love um or to be loved by someone I thought it was like the most important thing um and uh, unfortunately that can kind of lead you to being in like some really toxic situations um and it also does kind of stunt you from getting to know yourself if it's what you're completely dependent on um you know from as early as like 13 I was just desperate to be in relationships and I swear in between each of them there was probably about two days that I was single before I'd leap into the arms of someone else Um, and there were you know plenty of crossovers and I was a bit of a dirty dog because I was just so hell-bent on getting whatever validation I could get Um, and you know who knows what that stems from I don't know if it's a low self-esteem or I mean, it probably is a lot of different things, but I think that uh, reflecting on it and kind of really thinking about it has been an important part of um, maybe making sure that I don't fall into those same kind of habits that I did when I was a teenager um, because it can become really unhealthy. (laughs) Did you feel like you were settling? Can Can you tell me about the people whose arms you were leaping into? Oh God. Um, I mean, there were so many different types and look, a lot of it's, I guess, a part of being a teenager, you experiment with lots of different things and people. And because I was a teenage girl who I guess a lot of people could kind of sniff a fair bit of vulnerability out in, I was often being approached by far older men, um, and even women. And I thought that that was quite normal at the time. You know, I'd be 15 and hanging out with people in their 30s and then 17 and hanging out with men old enough to be my grandpa you know it was um like pretty sort of not right (laughs) um and often like people in powerful positions compared to me and really strange dynamics like that I would say I wasn't necessarily settling but I just wasn't really ever picky I mean the criteria for me being with people was pretty much oh they like me (laughs) well I guess I like them too you know and it would never really work out and I think that my ideas of what love really meant and how it was expressed and stuff were pretty um whacked out I didn't really understand boundaries and real communication and kind of the idea of healthy love um all that I was fixated on was intensity and, you know, that ridiculous chemical high that you get from being wanted. (laughs) 
And you've been making art about love since you were 14. I know that now you can look back on some of those moments and see that it was predatory, but how has your understanding of love as a whole really changed between now and then? I think that there was a point that I had to really force myself to sort of um, to stop the cycle. I think it was uh, just after, um, like we touched on with that last song, I kind of realised that this pattern had just been continuing and I was, um, you know, just, it just wasn't working out anymore. It was like I had to break up with being constantly in love because it was just... <laughs> It was too much and I was, you know, getting to 20 and I just realised I'd never learnt how to be alone and I'd never learnt how to kind of just, like, be with my own head. The, the idea of it sort of terrified me. I mean, I couldn't even go to sleep without having a television or something playing because the idea of having to be alone with my thoughts was really terrifying. Um, so I, I forced myself to uh, go overseas by myself and... I think that was really important for my, like, character development. I highly uh, advise young women and young people to try, if they can, to step out of that sort of habit of having to be around someone because it can kind of make you fall apart if you don't practice it. Um, And it's hard. I'm still working it out. You do really have to, um, you know, exercise it like a muscle. So... I think that actually does lead on to our next song. Yeah, well, it? I was about to say that you were talking about your trip to Europe. And yeah, t- tell me about the song that soundtracked that trip. So this next song is called Me and My Shadow by Peggy Lee. And it's a very cute song. And I, I think it kind of, I like how sort of melodramatic and, um, you know, sort of tongue in cheek it is. It's this kind of moan and groan about me and my shadow and all alone and feeling blue. And I remember listening to it a lot when I was by myself and sort of it was my own way of like taking the piss out of how lonely I felt. But at the same time, I felt empowered by the fact that I'd pushed myself to be alone with me and my shadow because it was sort of something that I didn't think I'd ever be able to do. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This song was chosen by Celeste Mountjoy. It's called Me and My Shadow by Peggy Lee. We never knock Because there's nobody there Just me And my You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website fbiradio.com. That song was called Me and My Shadow by Peggy Lee and it was chosen by Celeste Mountjoy, artist, now author of What the F Is This and my guest on Out of the Box today. We're talking about love and loss and the book Celeste and I want to talk about the chapter you wrote about grief. It's heartbreaking and filled with moments that I think anyone who has grieved before can relate to. In the book, you don't roll through the specifics of the losses you've felt, but can you give me an idea of what 
brought you to write that chapter? Yeah, I think that um, grief has been like a very sort of prominent uh, theme in my life the past couple of years. Um, It just felt like there was honestly a huge whack of um, loss that I went through from like, I think it was 2018 onwards. I've been living with my grandma since I was like um, four years old or something. And she died really unexpectedly and it was kind of like losing a parent. Um, You know, I moved out of home and it was pretty traumatic um, as all grief is. And I guess that's why I didn't necessarily want to be explicit about who had died in the book because other than that death, there have been um, many others that sort of followed it, unfortunately. Um, But it is just an unavoidable fact of life that like people that you absolutely adore die and sometimes it's unexpected and sometimes it's um you know far too soon but it does happen and you kind of do have to somehow navigate it so I thought that the fact of who it was that I was grieving or even if it was more than one person I didn't think that that was kind of important I thought that what was important was navigating the feeling itself and kind of how it looks and how it feels and it can be so different um I mean every person that I've lost and every time I've experienced loss I feel like it's been a whole new journey and I'm never quite prepared for it and you think that after you lose a certain amount of people you're kind of be seasoned like you're an expert with grief or something but you're just not um and it sucks and it always kind of hits you in a completely different way but I guess um talking about it and being able to communicate about it is something that I've always found helpful. I want to talk about the way that you communicate grief Celeste because you've done it through filthy rat bag this vessel that is inherently funny and weird and self-deprecating and dark Grief is such a serious thing. Can you kind of tell me what it meant for you to explore it that way? Yeah, I think uh, I think we have a bit of a way of pretending like death doesn't exist sometimes, especially in like Western society. Um, I think that because it's so hard and so jarring and awful, we just don't want to talk about it. No one wants to talk about death and dying and what follows um so it's an interesting subject to sort of delve into in that way because it's kind of the most taboo of them all um I think that talking about it though is the best thing to do and I mean I don't necessarily think that I use humor as a huge coping mechanism when it comes to grieving but I think that just talking about it in itself is the coping mechanism because we so often try to avoid it you know when someone tells us that someone they know has died like everyone kind of gets this like anxiety and they're like fuck you know what do I say they're like do I say oh I'm so sorry or do you say oh you know it's we fumble over these words because we don't know how to react because it makes us really uncomfortable but it's something that we all have to deal with um so I feel like rather than sweeping it under the rug, sort of opening it up and just putting it out there is something at least. Yeah, it's something that everyone goes through and 
I totally agree that it's not something we talk about. The first time I felt grief, I was shocked mm. by by what grief looked like because it, it wasn't something that I'd ever really dealt with. And I think something that I found really shocking was how it wasn't linear. It's kind of like these losses come up at random times in your life and surprise yeah, you. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, 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 I, that's a thing that I think is really interesting. Like you just said, that we expect that it will be linear. You expect to have to go through, I guess, you know, they describe the seven stages of grief, that sort of thing. Like you expect for there to at least be some sort of template of how you're going to react to certain things. But, to, you know, there have been times where I've been told that someone's died and I've almost felt like laughing or like I've just not even known how to respond because it's like too absurd and shocking and jarring. It's like how can this even be something that we're expected to cope with, you know? So what did it mean for you then to paint grief in a linear format like a book? You know, a a book goes page by page, chapter by chapter. How do you take an experience that's so weird and all around us and put it in that kind of format what was that like for you I think it was probably like the trickiest chapter for me because it didn't feel very optimistic um I mean I guess the following chapter was the one that hopefully put a bit more light on the subject but I think um while I was writing it as well I had a good friend of mine um she passed away which was really tricky because it was very sort of present I mean, tricky is an understatement. (laughs) Um, But it was, you know, interesting sort of processing death again and writing about it and making art about it at the same time. Normally, a bit of time passing first is, um, I guess, what I'm used to before I start making work about things that are painful. Um, I think that I tried my best to make sense of it the best that I could um with what I had and I think that's probably also why it's quite a sort of abstract chapter um because it is not something that is easy to wrap your head around and I still haven't wrapped my head around grief at all or what um it even fully means to me I mean it's you can identify like certain symptoms and and certain patterns like denial is a huge one for me but uh there's sort of it's a very big thing to try and get to the root of it and I feel like you try and grapple with it a little bit more in the last chapter and yeah instill a sense of hopefulness almost and I want to talk about that in a few minutes but first let's play a song by Amy Winehouse Celeste why did you pick this one this song's called a bittersweet for me it's uh I remember listening to so much Amy Winehouse just after my nan died um because she sort of writes about pain and loss and there's different ways of coping with it in such a beautiful way. She's one of my favourite singers of all time because she's just so lyrically poetic and also really funny and I just think she's fabulous. Um, but I remember listening to this song on repeat all the time because I'd just gone through another breakup a few days after my nana died and I'd never felt so alone. I sort of fell into this just like super mega depression um and I remember playing this song on repeat because it just felt like um the sentiment was exactly what I needed the idea that your tears can dry on their own and that you sort of don't need someone else to dry them for you was really beautiful to me 
This is Tears Dry on Their Own by Amy Winehouse on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It's my responsibility to get on nothing to me but to walk away. I have no progressivity. He walks away. The sun goes down. He takes the day, but I'm grown. And in your way, in this blue shade. It was Amy Winehouse on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Tears Dry on My Own. The chooser, Celeste Mountjoy, a.k.a. Filthy Rap Bag, my guest on the show today. And we were just talking about Grief, Celeste, which is the second last chapter of the book you've just put out. It's called What the F is This? And I want to close out this interview the way that you closed out the book. The last chapter is called Time Turns the Pain into Diamonds. How did you arrive at that? I think uh, it is just the only thing that I know that has ever truly helped heal. Um, I think obviously the things that happen within time's passing help the healing process, of course, you know, having people around you that you love and, you know, the sort of ways that you move while time passes. But I feel like it's this sort of distance. It's the only way that we can um, move past some things. It's like, uh, you know, if you cut yourself, then you need to wait for the wound to heal in order for it to get better, right? It's like, it's, it's just the natural way that we sort of things become less painful um and it's not an easy fix unfortunately uh because sometimes when you really want time to pass it feels like it's going like the slowest that it's ever gone um so I still find it quite difficult to stomach the idea that time might be the only remedy but there is truth in it and I remember my mum always telling me when I was going through rough times, just, you know, time, time will heal it and just give it some time. And, you know, in a few years, you won't even remember their name and, or, you know, in a few years, this won't be as bad. And that's certainly true. I mean, God, I think back to some of my first heartaches and, you know, I'm sure you're the same. It's like, you just don't even think twice about them. You can laugh at them. And at the time they can make you feel like you're going to die, especially when you're a teenager. Um, and in terms of, I mean, grief and time, it's tricky because like we were saying before, it isn't linear. Um, it's not like you get to a certain point where, you know, it's five years in the future and you don't miss them at all anymore and you're completely absolved of any sort of grief or feelings of loss that you had. But I think you just do learn how to miss them in a way that it isn't as jarring. You can sort of laugh about the memories with them and think about them in a way that isn't so kind of heart in your throat, I'm going to cry, um, painful. Uh, and I also think that the sentiment of time turns the pain to diamonds is, it gives me some kind of hope. I feel like without that sentiment, you, you're sort of just letting the pain and stuff turn into this bitter little rock of coal inside, which you, you just can't have. I mean, it's sometimes you don't get to choose um, what it turns into, but I think if you can try and 
have that sort of outlook, that it will just turn it into diamonds and into wisdom and into learning rather than bitterness and hatefulness, then it kind of feels like the pain is worth something. I don't want to get all gushy, but there was a line towards the end that I really liked where you talk about how badly you want there to be a solution to a quick fix and being so frustrated by the lack of answers and hoping that time will bring you a few. Has time brought you answers? I think um, time has brought me a lot of things, which is why I think it's sort of the biggest thing of all. Um, It's brought me a lot of clarity. Um, You know, the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about when I was a teenager and how it's sort of only now as an adult lady at 22 that I can look back on certain things and see them for what they really are. And so time's kind of magic in that way because it does bring you all this new insight and you can see things from all these different point of views. And sometimes seeing things from different perspectives can be heart-wrenching and can make you really hate people and it can make you hate yourself and you can beat yourself up and it can keep you awake at night. But I also think it gives you a lot of answers and sometimes that can give you something that is close to closure. Um, I, you know, these days I kind of don't fully believe in closure um, because I think that every time I've actively tried to get it, I've failed and that can kind of lead to opening up more wounds. But I think that that's the closest that I've gotten is clarity. What do you think the future looks like for you, Celeste? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I know that I'm traveling a little bit later this year. That's just simple things like that, which will be nice because it's been a long time. Um, I'm just happy to have released the book and to see what people have been thinking about it. And I've really been enjoying people's responses. Um, I'd love to make another book, actually. I think I'd probably veer towards something that is slightly less painful to make though because <laughs> you know this book was quite self-absorbed in a lot of ways and very personal I was thinking maybe like a book of sort of short stories or something like that could be fun mm. um yeah I'm just excited to see uh what time brings <laughs> what diamonds the time exactly <laughs> I, I don't think it's self-absorbed I think it's a really special story that even though it is about your life, it's so easy to impart your own narrative on. And it's been really special to get to sit down with you today and talk through it with you. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mia. It's been so nice to chat with you. What song would you like to end on today? Today we're ending on an upbeat, little <laughs> kind of tongue-in-cheek one again by Dionne Warwick called I'll Never Fall In Love Again. Um and I just love it. I It's one of the songs that I know all the words to and I can sort of sing to myself when I don't have any music. Um, and I just love the sentiment. <laughs> this is Dionne Warwick on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called I'll Never Fall in Love Again and it was chosen by Celeste Mountjoy, my guest on Out of the Box today. For the last hour, we have been talking about Celeste's book, What the F Is This? I'll put all the details to that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. While you're there too, you can look back at all of the songs that Celeste chose for the show or listen back if you like. You can also listen back by the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Do stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. Thanks for listening. Bye. What do you get when you kiss a guy?